All right, Brugge Shem. Well, welcome, everybody. Glad that you are here. This is, uh, this sure is being uh, broadcast on live stream. So if you're joining us on live stream, Brugge Shem, we welcome you. Tonight, we are going to be talking about Tuba'av, which is an amazing festival. Most people are completely uh, not unaware of it. Well, some people are un unaware of it, but most of us are unaware of the, the, the meaning of Tuba'av and its incredible importance. So with that said, let's pray and ask the Ruach HaKodesh to help us tonight as we dive into the study and with his help bring out some insights. Hashem, we thank you, Adonai, for your grace, your mercy, your tender love, your kindness, Hashem. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here this evening to study this important topic. Help us, Hashem to see your heartbeat. Help us to see the heartbeat of Mashiach as we explore this topic of Tuba'av. Father, send your blessing on everyone who's here and everyone who's watching, on every member of Sar Shalom, near and far. May your anointing be upon them. Give them prosperity and shalom and happiness and gladness and strength tonight in Yeshua's name. Amen. So Tuba'av, believe it or not, is considered one of the greatest festivals. One of the greatest festivals. It's really remarkable if you think about all the different festivals we have that Hashem has given to us, both the ones that are in Torah and then the others that came after Torah, like Hanukkah and Purim. If you think about all these amazing festivals and then to consider Tuba'av to be one of the greatest and the greatest festival, according to Jewish thought, is actually Yom Kippur. That it's the greatest, and, and rightfully so, even though Sukkot is known as simply the festival, and the sages say about Sukkot, if you've never seen the water drawing ceremony, then you've never experienced true joy. Nevertheless, Yom Kippur is considered the greatest festival because it involves atonement. It involves forgiveness. And so there's nothing greater, there's no greater joy that we can experience than coming to God and making teshuva and asking for his forgiveness and to be forgiven. And isn't it wonderful when we have relationships in our lives in which something has gone awry, a big, big split has happened, big pain, you know, split meaning a big uh, fight or division, and yet we can come back and, you know, humbly ask for forgiveness, apologize, and then move on together in a renewed relationship, forgetting that old uh, argument or whatever it is that caused the frustration. There's lots of joy in that. And so that's why people say, a husband and wife, husbands and wives fight. It's like, yes, but it's not the fighting that's important. It's the making up that's great, right? So that's the great thing about that. So this is the greatest festival. Tuba'av is, is put on the same plane as uh, Yom Kippur in terms of its greatness. It's considered and called the great festival. So Tuba'av, why is Tuba'av considered a great festival? For one thing, there are seemingly more things that were good that happened on Tuba'av than happened on any other festival day. So we know, so Tishbab will cover all the things that happen on Tishbab that make it such a terrible day. But there were actually six things that happened on Tuba'av. We get a little confused. Like Tishbab is the ninth of Av. Tuba'av is the 15th of Av. Two is a number. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> so <laughs> so, so the, here are the six things. First, there was the lifting of the band on marriage that was tribal-wide. So now, on, on, the, on Tuba Av, the decree was made that now you can marry from one tribe to another. It was a big thing, because back in the day when, in the wilderness, when everybody was limited to their own tribe, it was difficult to find a husband or a wife because you were limited to Menashe or, or, or whatever, right? Asher. But now you can pick from the whole nation. The second thing is that the second ban was lifted. That has to do with Benjamin when there was a civil war 
and everybody was against Benjamin, and Benjamin fought. It was bloody, it was messy, it was terrible. Then there was a decree that was made that nobody can marry anybody from Benjamin. Only Benjamites can marry Benjamites. Everybody else, they're not allowed to marry. So on Tuba'av, on the same day, it was that ban was lifted. Now they're back into the family, which is less about being able to marry and more about unity. The third is that the generation of the wilderness ceased dying. So in reality, the third reason is actually the main reason. But it's, they're listed in chronological order for whatever reason differently. But the third reason is actually the main reason. The fact that death, get this, because this is all going to play into to this entire discussion, death ceased on Tuba'av. Okay? The fourth thing is that the centuries are, were removed. Who were the centuries or what were the centuries? The centuries were the golden calves that Jeroboam had set up in Israel, that uh, one was in Bethel and one was in Dan, to, to uh, discourage the people from going to, to Jerusalem to worship the one true God. And instead, they prostrated themselves before these idols. And Hosea, on Tuba'av, uh, 240 years, I believe it was, later after their erection, uh, Hosea destroyed them. And it happened on Tuba'av. So, so again, marriage, unity, love. Now the people were no longer worshiping these false gods, but now they were coming back to the God of Israel. So we have on Tuba'av the, the concept of restoration of true worship. The fifth is that the Jews of, Be of uh, Behar were, were buried. So uh, the uh, Romans sacked Behar during the Bar Kokhba rebellion. That's where Bar Kokhba died. And he, the Romans, in an effort to, uh, to uh, punish the Jews because they knew how important it was, what a big mitzvah it was to bury the dead, they would not allow anybody to bury the dead. One of the blessings of the, uh, the, the fourth blessing, in fact, of the Birkat Hamazon that talks about God's miracles has, is, is, is a direct uh, prayer about this event. Because whereas the Romans said, don't bury them, let them rot out there. We know how important it is for you to bury the dead. So therefore, we're not going to allow you to bury them. God did a miracle in that he did not allow the bodies to decay. And so uh, it, when the time came that we could bury our dead, it just happened to be on Tubav. So there's that. The sixth one is that this was the completion of the wood chopping mitzvah. When the second temple was built, there was not enough wood to keep the altar fire going. So a, a great mitzvah happened. People, wood was precious because the Holy Land was pretty desolate. A lot of the trees had been cut down. Things had been destroyed. And so... The people who had come back to the Holy Land, they said, well, there's not enough wood for the altar fires. So people gave a portion, they gave tzedakah from their wood pile to the temple so that the altar could keep going. And so the prophets said, because remember it was the prophets who were alive that time, men of the great assembly from which we get most of our sitter today, if not almost all of it, come from the men of the Great Assembly. And the men of the Great Assembly, they say, well, don't these blessings, aren't they, weren't they created by, by men? Say, so, yes, they were. Like men like Zechariah and Haggai, Zerubbabel, Mordecai, Ezra, Nehemiah, those men. Those are the men who gave us this, right? Well, so those prophets said that even when the storehouse of wood in the temple is full, those people who gave up their wood will, can, will be reaping the benefit. So it was a big deal. And it just so happened that the, the, the day upon which uh, the sun begins to wane and therefore uh, people have to or should <clears throat> apply more of their Torah study at night and so on, they, they, they lose their daytime hour, happens to be at Tuba'av. So this became the time when it was uh, to cease cutting the wood to supply the temple with. And so this day was known as the day of breaking the axes. So it's a time of forgiveness and love and unity whereby we bury the hatchet or we break our axes. We stop cutting the wood for the fire and now we focus on 
worship and loving, because the fire has already been prepared for, so we no, we no longer have to strive for that, so we break our axes, and we, now we begin to serve Hashem in love and unity. And so this is, this is the, one, uh, the six things that happened on this day to make it such a blessing, blessed day. The sages point out the phenomenon that every year, Pesach, that is the 15th of Nisan, always falls on the same day of the week as Tisha B'Av, as the ninth of Av. Okay? So that's pretty remarkable. So every single year, no matter what's happening, whatever day we celebrate Pesach, that same day of the week is going to be the same day of the week in which we celebrate Tisha B'Av, or Tisha B'Av happens, I should say. Not necessarily that we celebrate, because remember this last year, Pesach fell on Shabbat. This year, Tishbab falls on Shabbat. But because we don't mourn on Shabbat, we don't fast on Shabbat, we move it to Yom Rishon. Okay? But the fact of the matter is, it still fell on the same day. So the sages ask a brilliant question. That is, what does, what is rather the, the, court, the connection between freedom and subjugation? Because Tishbab is really about subjugation. And Pesach is about freedom. So how, how are those two connected? Because nothing, is, as most of you should know by now, if you've been hanging around here for any length of time, nothing is coincidental in the kingdom of Hashem. Like everything happens for a reason, right? And so if, there is, if, if, this, if this is on the same day of the week and this is on the same day of the week, there's a connectivity there. So what is that? Well, Tisha B'Av to... to kind of add another eyebrow raise to the question, God in, in the book of Acha, which is Lamentations 1 and verse 15, so chapter 1, verse 15, Hashem refers to Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, he refers to Tisha B'Av as a moed, as a moed, as, an, as a festival. So somebody might say, why do we, why, okay, this is a very, very good, very good thought right here. Someone might say, because they're thinking, well, there's, there's, someone would tell you, but there's only seven festivals of the Lord. How many of you know what I just said is wrong? True. Right? There's not seven festivals of the Lord. There are eight. Okay? But somebody walks up and says, there's not seven festivals of the Lord. And you say with loving kindness, oh, you meant eight. But anyway, don't say that. So they say seven. There's eight, right? Because they forget about Shabbat. And then they wondered, so why are you celebrating an extra man-made festival like Tisha B'Av? Like, why are you celebrating Tisha B'Av, right? And the answer is, well, God called it a moed. So a festival is a moed. So we, we could say moedim for plural. So in Acha 115, God says, this is a feast. But so, so therefore, it's like, wait a minute. We have all these festivals. Now we have a feast of destruction. So what's the problem here? What are we missing? And the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that in God's equation, in his math, he equates the destruction of the temple somehow being linked to freedom and redemption. Let me say that again. In God's mathematics, he says, no, to me, tearing down this temple means that there's redemption and there's freedom. And so me, for me, it's a moed. And I, I don't know because we don't have any text to, to prove it, but perhaps when, you, when Hashem saw Yeshua there on the crucifixion stake, perhaps he saw that as a moed. Yeshua said, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it again in three days. What are we talking about? We know he was talking about his own death and burial and resurrection, which led to redemption and freedom. So in God's view, that tearing down the temple, we see it as a great act of sadness, and God sees it as a great act of redemption and freedom. Moreover, the destruction of the temple led to our exile. So we can all, we're all here in Fort Worth, Texas, and we can all, and, and we do lament that we're not in Israel. How wonderful it would be if we could tr transplant supernaturally, transplant Sar Shalom, and float it across the sea and drop it right down to the heart of, of Jerusalem, right? 
or on the, on the shores of Caesarea. I'd be okay with that too, all right? Uh, I'm okay with that. I'm just saying, okay? I'm okay with that. How awesome would that be? That'd be amazing, right? And then if there actually is a third temple, um, oh, there, will, there will be a third temple. I don't mean it like that. I meant like it, when this happened, there's a third temple. How much more so? Because then the Shiak is there and there we are in the land. Everything is awesome. This is amazing. And that's going to happen maybe sooner our time. So we can lament that, and we should be lamenting, we should be grieving, we should be asking Hashem to build a temple, and we do so every day, multiple times a day, but here's the thing, because we are where we are, other people are seeing the light. So the sages say that the reason that we were sent into exile, the whole purpose of the exile, if you really get down to the reason of we, as found in the writings of the sages, is so that many converts can be brought into the kingdom. So as, as difficult as it is to live in the area that we live, and for some of us, you know, uh, we might be the only ones walking around town in a kippah and seat seat or so on, or a tekel or whatever, right? But we can never lose sight of the fact that that's all part of God's plan because he has us exactly where he wants us because that's where he needs the light. If you have a campsite, Everybody has their lanterns all in the middle of the campsite. Then somebody wanders off into the woods. It does no good to leave the, the lanterns with the other lanterns. You have to take the light, light where it's needed. Okay? So, in Eka Rabbasai 40.51, which is uh, the Midrash to the book of Eka, it says that the Messiah is born on Tishbaav. The Messiah is, on, is born on Tishbaav. Now, that's not necessarily to be taken literally. But if we think about it in those concepts, we have when the destruction of the temple happens, there is a resurrection, which is the birth of the Messiah. So Yeshua says, tear down this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. You can say, when this temple is destroyed, Tishbaav, then the, the, the birth happens. One could actually make the argument that the Mashiach, when he uh, came up from the tomb, that he in fact was born anew that day, because now he's Mashiach bin David. Okay? So, what this means is that the seeds of redemption, according to the, to the Jewish thought, is somehow, this is actually a quote from the, from the Art Scroll book on Tishbav, the seeds of redemption will somehow emerge during the darkest of all times. Let me read that again. The seeds of redemption will somehow emerge during the darkest of all times. I would submit to you that when Mashiach was crucified, that was the darkest of all times. And in fact, it says that darkness covered the earth. And during that time, and all the, all the Talmudim are terrified. Everybody is just sad. Miriam and the two Miriams are weeping and crying. But at that immense darkness came the seeds of redemption. So again, Yeshua said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Judean leaders said to him, 46 years this temple, it took this to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was talking about the temple of his body. So after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he was talking about this. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Yeshua spoke. So that comes from John chapter 2. 19 through 22, which is a really an interesting thing. And so this is a concept that um, I, I want to uh, emphasize in our shul, and, and that is connecting the dots between what is talked about in Torah and what Yeshua actually said and lived. Too, too often we compartmentalize those things. Like we talk about Tuba'av, we don't you know, we, we don't always, when we're studying about it, we don't always say, well, how does that relate back to the Mashiach? But look what the Talmudim did. They listened to the Mashiach, and then when they saw his resurrection, they hearkened back to what he said, what the living Torah said, and connected the dots. And that's what we have to learn to do. We have to train ourselves, which requires two things. It requires knowing what Mashiach taught, and it requires knowing what the Torah says. So when we read something, and then we read it in Jewish literature... We're like, oh, wait a minute. That goes right back to what Mashiach taught and said and lived. So why was the Messiah resurrected on Yom Rishon? 
This is a kind of a side question. So he said he's going to be tear down this temple in three days. He'll raise it up again. Why was the Messiah resurrected on Yom Rishon? And why wasn't he resurrected right away? By the way, he said three days. And so I've taught on this before, but just kind of to mention it, uh, a lot of people will take issue with the fact that, um, well, he, you know, if, we, if he was crucified on a Friday, then he resurrected on Sunday. That's not full, three full days. And so people get all out of whack on the cr- chronology of when that happened, and some people say, wait, no, maybe it was a Thursday, and, and, and people lose their minds over that, and some people lose their faith over that. And, and so there's a reason why the Basora does not tell us what day of the week it was, is because that's not important for us to know. That's very important for you to know. <laughs> because the sages talk about Getting too deep in exploring esoteric ideas, especially when it comes to creation, because there are certain things that we just don't need to know. And I know that's hard for us as humans because we think we need to know everything. But imagine how it was when you were a child or when you were a teenager and your parents didn't tell you everything because you just don't need to know everything. I was around a young man one time. And he was not but 10 years old. And he was just ring, literally like wringing his hands, worried about, you know, he had a single mom. was worried about, uh, mom, uh, tires on our car are not, not, uh, not real good right now. And he's just not sure how that's going to be solved and rectified. He's really concerned. Well, that's really sweet that he's concerned, but he's 10 years old. He should not have to be worried about that. That is not something he needs to concern himself about. 10 years old, he needs to be putting war paint on his face and going playing cowboy and Indians. Let the adults figure out about the tires on the car. Okay, there are certain things we don't need to be concerned about with, and sometimes we, we're more concerned about with what the Messiah didn't say than what he did say. Mm-hmm. Having said that, we asked a question. I wonder why he was resurrected in Rome. Oh, I know I was going to say about the three days. Because uh, he said, like Jonah, right? Well, Jonah was not in the well three full days. Three full days, three full nights. He was not. And in Judaism, any part of a day is a day. Any part of a day. So if you have a baby boy, and it is an hour before sundown on a, on a Yom Rishon, that the first day of that baby's life is Yom Rishon. Therefore, his circumcision is going to be on the following Yom Rishon. We can say, but wait a minute. He was only, I mean, like, boom, he's born, and like the sun went down 45 minutes later. It's like, yeah, but that's a day. So you can say he was, he's been on the earth eight days. And the legalists amongst us would say, no, he hasn't. So, but in Sanhedrin 65b, it tells us why the Mashiach was not resurrected on Shabbat. Why was he not resurrected on Shabbat? Why was he resurrected on Yom, Yom Rishon? Remember, it was after dark. It was Havdalah time that he was resurrected. So it tells us in Sanhedrin 65b why that is. So Rabbi Akiva is having a argument with a wicked Roman named Turnus Rufus, who was like a... Roman dictator, general kind of guy. And he had lots of arguments with this Turnus Rufus guy. And so Turnus Rufus is asking the question, how do we know, how many of you have ever heard this question asked? Maybe not to you personally, but you've heard it asked. How do we know if Shabbat is the Shabbat? If that day of the week actually is the Shabbat? Maybe it got changed in history and we're celebrating on the seventh day, which we, we call in our term Saturday, but maybe it's not. Maybe back in the olden days, the seventh day was actually Tuesday. We just don't realize it. So how do we know the Shabbat is Shabbat? And so one of Rabbi Akiva's answers is a practitioner of Ov, that is someone, a necromancer, basically, proves it. Oh, this is so good. A practitioner of Ov proves it. Because on this day, that is on Shabbat, the spirit of the dead will not ascend for him. And Rabbi Akiva goes on to say, the grave of your father proves it because it does not emit smoke on the Shabbat. What does that mean? So the footnote tells us the story. It says here, Turnus Rufus was dissatisfied with Rabbi Akiva's first answer. It had to do with a river that was far away that stopped flowing or something. And he said, well, maybe because it's too far away, he's trying to pull the wool over my eyes so I can't go test him. 
So Rabbi Akiva gave him the second answer. He said that a practitioner of Ov is unable to raise the spirit on Shabbat. So Turnus Rufus put his claim to the test by attempting to raise the spirit of his own father on the Sabbath. He succeeded in doing, he succeeded in raising his spirit on every other day of the week except Shabbat. The spirit of his father would not come up on Shabbat. When he raised the spirit the following Yom Rishon, Turnus Rufus asked his father whether he had converted to Judaism in his afterlife. No, no, you say, how can that happen? Mashiach went and preached to the dead. Right? It says, his father replied, here, that is in death, all rest on the Sabbath. Turnus Rufus then asked, from what do you need to rest? Now, this is why the smoke doesn't ascend. From what do you need to rest? And his father replied, from judgment. So on Shabbat, and this is found in, I did another teaching on Havdalah once. And God turns off the fires of Gehenna on Shabbat and gives all people who are suffering Gehenna, gives them a rest on the Sabbath which is why we smell the spices at Havdalah time. That The reason we smell the spices is because that's when God turns on the flames again. So the spices rem- mask that experience. Wow. So the reason that Mashiach did not raise the life on Shabbat is because the grave rests on Shabbat. That's why he resurrected on Yom Rishon. So... Carrying on our discussion of Tuba'av, if Tisha B'Av is Pesach, seven days later is Tuba'av. So therefore, Tuba'av must correspond then to the seventh day of Pesach, which was the parting of the Red Sea, which was the final complete redemption when death is swallowed up in victory. So therefore, Tuba'av is an, such an important festival because it celebrates the final redemption. It, like a mirror, mirrors back to Pesach. So the sages teach that there were 10 plagues performed in Egypt, but they also say there were 10 plagues performed at the sea. So therefore, this tells us, this is indicative of the fact that there were two distinct redemptions, two distinct periods of redemption. There was a period of redemption of the Exodus itself, which led us to freedom. But then there was a separate and distinct redemption that was the parting of the Red Sea that swallowed up death and victory. Therefore, there are two Messiahs. There's the Messiah who sets us free, and then there's the Messiah who swallows up death and victory. And so this is yet another picture of the Mashiach. So at the first exodus, we experienced God in a way. How did we experience him? We saw the Lamb of God at the first exodus. At the final redemption, we saw God himself. So at this first redemption, we saw the manifestation, the image of God, the Lamb of God. But at the final redemption, we'll see Hashem himself. As he's, as he's known even by the angels. And we'll be able to see him even as the lowliest maiden at the Yom Suf saw him. Everybody will be able to see him clearly and know he's known. Also on this day, it's understood from the, from the prophecy of Zechariah 8.19. You can, you can look at this up later. In Zechariah 8.19, let's see, I may have it here. It talks about the fact that the fasting will cease during this time. That during, um, I don't have it here, unfortunately. I thought, I thought it was right here in front of me, but it is not. Oh, here it is. Praise God. Zechariah eight nineteen. the fast of the fourth month, that is the month of Tammuz, the fast of the fifth month, that is Av, the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth, will be to the house of Judah for joy and for gladness, for happy festivals, only love, truth, and peace. So there is a prophecy that when the Mashiach comes back 
and establishes the third temple, then all these fast days and morning times that we're celebrating now will be transformed into festivals of joy. Now, in Luke chapter 5, 33 through 35, we're going to connect the dots. Okay? Luke 5, 33 through 35. But they said to him, John's disciples only fast and offer prayers as do the disciples of the Pharisees, but your disciples are eating and drinking. First clue right there, we know he's talking, the people are talking to Yeshua and his disciples as if they're Pharisees, because otherwise, why would they ask this question? John was a Pharisee also. So John and his disciples are fasting, like all the other Pharisees. How come y'all aren't? Well, if they're not Pharisees, that's a stupid question. By the way, this takes place at a Pharisee's house. So anyway, but your disciples are eating and drinking. But Yeshua said to them, you cannot make the guests of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, that is when the temple is destroyed, and they will fast in those days. We didn't fast on Tishbob when the temple stood. But we do now because there's no temple. But when the Mashiach comes, there will be, will be these festivals will be turned into festivals of joy. Now, how many of you have heard of Shabbatai Zavi? Okay, Shabbatai Zavi was a man who lived in the 17th century, and the, the entire Jewish world, aside from a handful of holdouts, believed that Shabbatai Zvi was the Mashiach. It caused such an uproar that when he turned out not to be the Mashiach, uh, this is what later led to, to the rabbis being suspicious of the Hasidic movement and the Baal Shem Tov specifically. Okay? But Shabbatai Zvi, there's a, the, the, the story, the history about Shabbatai Zvi is completely fascinating. And... If you read about Shabbatai Zavi, he honestly thought he was the Mashiach, and he began to say things about himself that were also said about Yeshua, which today, Jews today, they hear things about Yeshua like, he's the son of God, he's the, the, the light of the world, he's the everlasting father, that type of thing, and they say, that's blasphemy, nobody would ever say that, anybody who said that it says that the Mashiach is a fraud, etc., but Shabbatai Savi said all that and more, and the whole Jewish world went after him. He called himself the everlasting father, the son of God, the only righteous light of the world. Yes, he did. And he said this. This is a quote from, from this is a information from the Encyclopedia Judaica 14, column 1235. Shabbatai Zavi says, as the cast, this is what he wrote, as the fast of the 17th of Tammuz in 1666, 1666, anyway, as the fast of the 17th of Tammuz and the 9th of Av approached, Shabbatai Zavi euphoria mounted. So in 1666, as they were coming up to the three weeks we're in right now, the, the, the euphoria of Shabbatai Zavi was like, he is the Mashiach. Everybody's going crazy. The whole world, the whole Jewish world is going crazy. And by the way, he had prophets too that were going around saying that he was a Mashiach. He had prophets. And one of the prophets was in Israel, in Gaza, saying that he's a Mashiach. Okay. So it says here, um, he not only proclaimed the abolition of these fasts, but he in instituted new festivals in their stead. The 70th of Tammuz became the day of the revival of Shabbatai Zavi's spirit, and he turned the 9th of Av into the festival of his birthday. So, Shabbatai, so what does this teach us, though? Okay, we know Shabbatai Zavi is not, was a false Mashiach, obviously. But what does it teach us about what Judaism expects and expected? They expected when the Mashiach would come that, A, these fasts would be turned into fasts of celebration. Just like Mashiach said, he said, when the bridegroom is with them, they do not fast. But when he's taken away, they will, will fast. You see. By the way... A Polish rabbi named Nehemiah Hakohen from Lvov was not convinced that Shabbatai Zvi was the Mashiach. And there was reasons why he wasn't convinced, but just 
push that aside, he was not convinced. When I say there's a reason why he's not convinced, what I mean by that is he had his own personal agenda going on. Okay? But he was not convinced that Shabbatai Zavi was the Mashiach. He wasn't convinced. So he went to Shabbatai Zavi, and they had a long conversation, and it was been recorded kind of what happened there, and it was not a pleasant meeting. But there was one primary reason above all, because Shabbatai Zavi gave him some Kabbalistic stuff, this guy was a Kabbalistic master, and so it wasn't matching up. But there was one primary reason why he said, you cannot be the Mashiach. And this is, are you ready for this? Are you ready for the why? Uh, this is a quote from the Encyclopedia Judaica. He stressed the absence of a visible Messiah ben Yosef who should have preceded Shabbatai Zavi. So wait a minute, wait a minute. Mashiach, everybody's telling us that Yeshua can't be the Mashiach. The reason it can't be Mashiach is because he didn't come to establish world peace. He didn't gather in the tribes. He didn't do all these things that Rabbi uh, Mashiach bin David's supposed to do. And so therefore, he cannot possibly be the Mashiach. And yet, Shabbatai Zavi comes in. He's gathering all the tribes. He's bringing about world peace. And they say, you can't be the Mashiach because Mashiach bin Yosef hasn't come yet. You see? You see what's going on? So, this is, he, so go, go take it a little bit further. In Luke chapter 5, verse 36, this is the verse after he talks about the fact that you cannot, uh, they're, they're, excuse me, when the bridegroom is, is with you, you won't fast. When he's taken away, you'll fast. Right after that, he gives a cryptic um, parable that I admit requires a lot of really thinking. Mashiach says, now he was telling, this is the very next verse, now he was telling them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment to use it on an old garment. Otherwise he will rip the new and the patch from the new will not match the old. Now, in context, these fasts that the Pharisees were asking him about are all rabbinical legislation in nature. They're all based on good reasons, but they are rabbinical in nature. The only biblically required and mandated fast, which is why it trumps the Shabbat, is Yom Kippur. That's the only one that comes right from God. Doesn't mean that fasting other days is wrong, you know, obviously. Obviously, right? But that's the reason why we move to Shabbat if it's on a Shabbat, because we're like, okay, that's rabbinic. Doesn't mean it's like just rabbinic. It just means that you know it doesn't trump Shabbat. But the one that's from God trumps Shabbat. We never met, we never moved that one, right? So the question is, what does he mean by this? What does he mean by new claw, new a patch from a new garment? Tear it, tear it off the new garment, put it on the old garment. You're gonna have a torn new garment, and the old garment's not gonna receive it. What does that mean? Well, Mayam Loez to Shira Shreem 714. The Song of Songs 714 says, The mandrakes yield fragrance, and at our doors are luscious fruits, new and old. I have kept them for you, my beloved. And Mayam Loez, in a long dissertation about this, says, Some say that new and old refers to Torah law and rabbinic legislation. Therefore, what Mashiach is saying in this situation is, Listen, you're, taking, you're tearing off a, an, a patch from a new garment, from rabbinic legislation, and you're trying to sew it onto an old garment, which is written Torah. And now what you have is rabbinic legislation that's all torn up and out of place. And you have written legislation that's going to reject that as not written. Which is a lesson for us in that we need to keep things in their proper categories. That what is rabbinic is rabbinic and what is Torah is Torah. And sometimes we confuse the, the two. Just like I was saying on Shabbat. So very often we confuse custom and tradition with halakha. And then, then when we get to the halakha, we've got to say, well, well, what is rabbinic and what is Torah law? I'll give you an example. So I was in a class that's been a few years ago in Dallas. There's a rabbi giving the class from the, from the Torah Institute there. And... Uh, the class, the whole class was about kashrut. It was about an eight-week course I was taking there. And the rabbi was talking about, um, he was talking about meat and dairy uh, mixtures. 
And, and he was bringing down the common thought that poultry <coughs> is a rabbinic prohibition and red meat is a Torah prohibition. I did approach him privately after class and asked him about the two verses where God, in response to the people asking for meat, sends them poultry. He had never considered that before. But that aside, let's suppose that poultry is, is a rabbinic um, thing and red meat is, is Torah law. So he says in the class, so if you actually had a cheeseburger, like a hamburger with cheese, that, that's a big offense. That's breaking Torah law, and basically you're, you're out, right? He said, but if you have a chicken sandwich with cheese, and, and I quote, he says, you only break rabbinic law. He used the word only. It doesn't mean that you just run out now. That's, that's licensed now to have a cheese sandwich. It, with a, I mean, a, a turkey, turkey cheese sandwich or whatever. The point being is that he was keeping things in their right categories, as we do in the United States. There is constitutional law, right? And then there's legislation. And legislation is always subordinate to constitutional law, okay? With the right to bear arms. But one state or one city say, well, okay, yeah, but, you know, this is why the that was struck down that the, what was it? D, Washington, D.C. said, you're not allowed to have a firearm, even in your house, even in your car. The Supreme Court heard that and said, oh, so sorry. No, that's not constitutional. You can have restrictions, but you can't totally ban them because the constitution doesn't ban them. Same thing, same principle here, okay? So we've got to make sure that we don't try to take new patches and sew it onto the old garment. That's the point, Okay. It's not saying that he does, that, because Mashiach, remember, said, when I'm gone, they're going to fast. But evidently, he understood what they were trying to do is they were trying to make the fasting on the level of, of breaking Torah, right? Think about what they said about the Mashiach, how he broke the Sabbath, which he did not. But to them, he did, because he, they were taking the new patch and putting on the old garment and trying to say that he... No, what we said, thanks. what about the hand-washing? We believe in hand-washing here, 100%. Awesome, right? Believe it? But they were sent to find out if this guy's the Mashiach. Think about that. They're like, you're on, your mission is to find out if this guy's the legit Mashiach. And the first thing out of your mouth to find out if he's legit or not is if he's, if he's ceremonially washing his hands or not. Are you kidding me? Like, that's where you start? With, with that, you know, so, um, which is why he said what he said. That's exactly why he said that you take the teachings of men, you elevate. That's the whole point of what he was not saying, because it said some of his disciples, which meant some were washing, and he himself is not a disciple, so therefore he was watching. But he's like saying, look, guys, come on, man. You show up, and you want to find out the Mashiach. You're not asking me about anything Torah. You start with that. Let's start there. And then we work ourselves down, right? So... The, the present power of the, of the hagim, of the hag. Talmud 29a says, Good things are brought to pass on an auspicious day and bad things on an ominous day. This is the principle that when we enter into a, a festival season, that we experience the same spiritual power that exists in that festival season. So for us as Jews, the celebration of Pesach or Yom Kippur or Tuba'av or T you know, any of those festivals is not a remembrance. It is actually living out. You can think of it like this. It's like when we, we step in time to go forward in time to live in the present. We take all of that energy, all that power, and Hashem brings it right here, which te teaches us a lesson, and that is that when we are living in a day, an auspicious day, then we can say, man, there's great, there's great anointing here. And when we have an ominous day like Tishbah coming up, we should be cognizant of that fact. This is why a lot of Jews on Tishbah did not travel. They, they limited their activity on that day um, because it, you lessen your exposure, right? What happened on Tishbah? Let's just cover Tishbah. So Tishbah, and by the way, Trust me when I say this, that the Hasatan Kurspihi will throw out every kind of test and every kind of temptation to mess up your holiday season. Oh, yeah. 
So you're like, oh, great, Pesach is coming. This is great. And the enemy is saying, yeah, Pesach is coming. I'm going to try to find a way to mess up their life. And Hashem says, go ahead, test them. Try it out. See what happens. They need a good test anyway. This is good for, this is good for them. And so you're getting frustrated. And, and uh, Miss Judy of Blessed Memory, every time this synagogue was going through a trial, and she would always go, wait a minute, stop, everybody, stop. Pesach's like two days away. Are we, is there any wonder why we're going through a testing time right now, right? So Tishbaav, Tishbaav, what happened to Tishbaav? The, the spies gave their bad report. Rome conquered Behar. Turnus Rufus, remember him, raised Jerusalem to the ground on this day. In 1492, the Inqu Inquisition started. On, uh, on August 1st, 1914, World War II, or excuse me, World War I was started on Tisha B'Av, which eventually, World War I, there was like an, a ceasefire, and then World War II started. So really, World War I led to the Holocaust, okay, and millions of people dying. Both temples were destroyed on this day. Obviously, Tisha B'Av, in the three-week period in which we find ourselves now, is an ominous period. This is a dark period. This is a, the dark season of the year, ironically, at a time of the year when the sun is at its strongest. But that's why Hashem, Hashem just does not work in our time frame. Think about this. When we're in the darkest time of the year during Hanukkah season, that's when the light is brightest spiritually. And you're like, why does Hashem do that? I don't know. But I will tell you, and this is a caution to all of us and to everybody who's watching, that during these three weeks, and especially on Tisha B'Av, this is not a time to make big decisions or big changes in your life. This is not a time to think about, should I divorce my husband? <laughs> this is not a time to consider whether I should change jobs. or Because just understand that whatever frustrations or fears or anxieties or, or depressions or concerns that you're having, they're being heightened right now because of the season we're in and the Yetzirahara has kind of a license to mess with us during this time. So it's spiritual warfare. And we have to be careful. We have to be cognizant of that. And so when we come to Tishbaav, we have to understand that what, what was Tishbaav is like Pesach, right? Well, well Tishbaav has kind of a duality to it. It's kind of, it's, it's destruction, but it's also freedom. But what the point to, to talking about what I'm saying here, what did we do on Pesach? Talk about on Pesach, not the week of Pesach, but on Pesach. What did we do? We stayed hunkered inside, worshiping, praying, lifting up blessings, cleaving the God, shielded by the blood on the doorpost. Tisha B'Av is not a time to go out in the streets and go, I don't know, I'm thinking about dying. What do you think? Do you want to die with me? And that's not the time to do Tisha B'Av is a time to stay indoors, stay hunkered down, daven, let the blood guard you and protect you. And Tuba'av is the time when we go out and we dance with our tambourines and we, we worship God. And we, 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 from that point forward, that's when we begin to really... Um, express our great joy at the final redemption. And in the, uh, in the Talmud, it says here that this, that this time, that Tish, uh, Tisha B'Av was a, a, this, this time, rather, of uh, Tuba'av, I should say, is a season of, of resurrection. But it was during this time that the people would go out Every year, imagine this, by the way, every year they would go out and they would, everybody would dig a grave. Everybody who was of the age that God had indicted, everybody would dig a grave. And on the evening of Tishbaav, everybody would lay down in the grave. And in the morning, somebody would call out, let the living be separated from the dead. And those who were alive would wake up and leave the grave and they would fill in their graves and everybody who was dead, they would fill in the graves on top of them and they would be dead and buried. You never knew if you were going to be the one to die that night. But what happened the final year is that everybody dug their grave and they all laid down. The next morning they said, let the living be separated from the dead and everybody came out of the grave. For the next 
seven nights or six nights, they all laid in the grave because they thought, well, maybe, maybe Hashem is testing us. And so they all laid in the grave every night. And finally on Tuba'av, they realized that the time had passed and they all came out of the grave again. So therefore, Tuba'av represents a type of resurrection. By the way, you can read about this if you have like Sepharia app and you want to read in the Talmud about it. This is Tanait 26b, and it says in, in Tanait 26b that um, Israel had no days as festive as the 15th of Av and Yom Kippur when the maidens of Jerusalem would go out dressed in white garments that they had borrowed as to not embarrass another girl who didn't have anything, and they would dance in front of the young men who were unmarried, and the young men would go out there, and he would pick his bride. This happened on Tuba Av and Yom Kippur. Okay, so <clears throat> we also learn that um, in Tanait 31a, it tells us that in the end times, why do we sell at Tuba'av at this end time? It said, Ula Bira said in the name of Rabbi Eliezer, in the future, the Holy One, blessed be he, will make a circle of all the righteous people, and he will sit among them in the Garden of Eden, and each and each and every one will point with their finger toward him, and they will say, he shall say on that day, behold, this is our God. We hope to him, and he saved us. This is Hashem to whom we hoped. Let us exalt and be glad in his salvation. Some say they get up and dance. But they point to God and say this. In other words, they're seeing Hashem. We will all see him. The Rombel brings down, that this is precisely why we dance with the Torah scroll on Simcha HaTorah. We are preparing for the final redemption when we dance with Hashem. That's why, we, that's why we form a circle and dance with the Torah scroll. Because at the final redemption, we will all dance, as it were, with Hashem. We will, hold, we will point to him, or in this case, hold and say, this is my God and I shall worship him. Yes, like Rebbe Singh said, even the women do that. Why was there a permanent holiday established? That's a good question. We can understand the holiday for them, but why the holiday for us? We didn't die in the desert or so on. Well, the sages say that there's really one main reason why that there was a permanent holiday established for Tuba Av. And the answer is, for 39 years, they write, Hashem did not speak to Moses face to face because of Israel's sin. Tuba'av, therefore, represents a restoration of the image of God. This is our God, and we will worship him. Therefore, for us, this is a time when we begin to see Yeshua face-to-face -face that is more in a more, with more endearment and more intimacy. And why is that? Because right after Tuba'av, we roll right into the 40 days of Teshuvah which is where we really begin to see the image of Yeshua, where we really begin to, to know him intimately and with more endearment because we can celebrate this day and then we roll right into the 40 days of returning to God. So another question is, is how can you have all these young girls dancing around and it not be a violation of modesty? Because that seems kind of immodest. You're dancing around. The pretty girls are saying, hey, pick me because I'm beautiful. The girls who are not quite as beautiful say, pick me because I've got a good family. The girls who are kind of homely say, pick me because, you know, it's about, it's about those who love Hashem, not about beauty. And all the guys are like, okay. And so they're, pick, they're making their choice, right? This seems on Tuba Av and especially on Yom Kippur, how can this happen? And the answer is, is that at this time, the evil inclination is removed. And so far, there's no, con there's no concern of, of immodesty because there's no evil inclination. If you think about it, remember that it was at the Yom Suf, and then the Torah was coming forth, and it says that people were like angels. There was no evil, evil inclination. The spirit of, of death was removed from them. So that's why. Because of the holiness of these days, our evil inclination this is also why this is a, a great day, uh, known to be a great day of having weddings, which is why it's known as the Israeli Day of Love and so on, because when it comes to uh, the spirit of unity and love, 
there's no better way to illustrate that than, than a man and wife being married. Unity, love, self-sacrifice. It says in the Talmud, Sanhedrin 22a, 40 days before the formation of an embryo, a heavenly voice proclaims, the daughter of this one is meant to marry this one. By the way, I don't have to, I'm preaching to the choir about abortion, but this totally flies in the face of the abortion debate because 40 days before, 40 days before the embryo is created, which God obviously knows when that's going to be, he already is making a match. So therefore, how can we have abortion if God in heaven is already made in a match? So he's saying, being that the world was created on the 25th of the day of Elul, 40 days before creation would have been the 15th day of Av. <laughs> so a 15th day of Av, God is already saying, hey, Adam, Hava, y'all are a match. You see? He hadn't even started creating yet. So the tuba ab, you could say, is a celebration of what's going to happen in, when creation comes to earth. Furthermore, it says, just as one mourns the death of a relative for six days and then gets up to, to rebuild, so we mourn for seven days. We sit Shiva for seven days until Tubav. So the question is, how can we bring down a divine presence? In the Sota 17a says, when a husband and wife merit to live together righteously, the divine presence rests between them. So we have this, this concept of um, love, unity. Unity brings the divine presence. So it says in um, the book of Psalms 133, we, this is a famous song we sing very often in different ways. A song of ascents of David. This is a song of ascents. This is one of the psalms we say when we're ascending to the temple. Of David, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, Aaron's beard, coming down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. Now this part is the most crucial verse in this psalm. For there, Adonai commanded the blessing that is life forevermore. Where? Where did he command the blessing? In unity. In unity. This is why community, community, is so important. And I marvel sometimes when I hear people say, God is calling me away from the, from the unity, I mean the community. Where is he calling you to? I'm not really sure. Wait a minute. I thought Hashem was a God of principle. I thought God said that in unity is where he commanded the blessing. So he's calling you out of unity and you don't even know where he's going to send you. And you think that that's the spirit of God. What's really, what, what's really the problem? Well, usually it's an offense. It's a frustration. It's something. It's something that Yetzirah got involved and caused disunity that the person is acting upon. Tuba'av is a celebration of unity. Tuba'av is a celebration whereby we come by and say, now we can intermarry together. Now all, all axes are broken. Now we can, come, we can bring down the divine presence because we're rebuilding the temple. And so this is what the psalm is saying. It's saying that where unity exists, that's where God brings the blessing. And so love and unity... Therefore, love and unity are, an, are, are antidotes to baseless hatred. You can't hate somebody without cause if you love and unify with them. So this is why Tuba'av is the Israeli day of love, because marriage is the best example of love and unity breaking down baseless hatred. Right? So, and, and by the way, marriage is a great example of how to live in unity and community with somebody, Right? I mean, how many times have married couples had fights and arguments and man, we, they get, they, you know, divorce could happen every, every, every moment. But there's always, there's a reconciliation, there's a unity, there's a coming together. I also want to point out a couple, one more thing before um, we conclude tonight. 
something that was said about the girls, that they would go out and they would dance in white garments that they would borrow from one another. And so there was a protocol. There was a protocol in which the king's daughter would go to the high priest and borrow from her. And the high priest's daughter would go to the deputy high priest and borrow from the deputy high priest's daughter. The deputy high priest's daughter would go to the priest anointed for war's daughter and borrow from her. The deputy, I mean, excuse me, the priest anointed for war's daughter would go to the other priest's daughter and borrow on down the line until the girl who was the lowest among Israel, somebody came to her house and said, I don't have anything nice to wear. May I borrow something from you? The question is, is why was that? And that reason, the whole reason for that big protocol, you can imagine how insane that would be to, to, not insane, but how just amazing it would be to do that. It was all about not embarrassing somebody who had nothing. So now when the, you can imagine the king's daughter comes to the great high priest's daughter and says, I have nothing to wear. Can I borrow one of your clothes? Now she's fulfilling a mitzvah by giving her something to wear. And the lowliest maiden who's poor, someone comes to her house and says, I have nothing to wear. Can I borrow something that you wear? Can you imagine? I can only assume that the, the king's daughter would find the lowliest lady in the, in the community and give her her dress. So that everybody would have something and no one would be embarrassed. And so that is an excellent point about this holiday is that it reminds us of the important mitzvah of not embarrassing someone else. Not embarrassing them. And if you really think about it, what a great mitzvah that is not to embarrass somebody else. And it's so easy to do and sometimes we do it um, unintentionally. Sometimes we do it because uh, we're saying a little joke or whatever, you know. But this is what Israel did. They went out of their way to make sure that no one was embarrassed so that everybody could have a good time. Lately, I've talked about, you know, not being Halakha police, not being Lashon Hara police, not going to somebody's house and asking, is this kosher? You know, that type of thing. There's other examples. But it's all about embarrassing, not embarrassing someone. So you go to somebody, you see they're doing something. That's not exactly how I do it. That's not your place to say anything. You're in their realm, so you're going to do it how they do it. This is why in Israel, when you go to visit another synagogue and you see them doing something, you say, well, that's not how we do it at Sar Shalom. Don't just do it how they're doing it. If, right? That's how you, do you do it how they do it? No one wants you to say, well, the way that we do you know, we've had people that have done that here. They've come to visit. Well, that's not how we do it back where we're from. Well, that's great. When you go back there, that's how you'll do it. And while you're here, this is how we do it. Right. And it's all about not embarrassing someone. Because maybe they don't know. Maybe they don't know. I don't know. Maybe they don't know that you're not supposed to... Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. What, I, don't know what, I don't, can't think of an example. Maybe you observe them doing something, you're like, oh, you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to move the sitter to there. You're supposed to move it back over here. Don't say that. Just say, Hashem, someday they'll, Hashem, they'll, someday they'll see me do it like this. And they'll go, oh, look, I'm inspired to do that now. <laughs> That's how it happens, right? Yeah, keep those... Don't tear up your new clothes. <laughs> let's, keep, uh, let's keep the old garments, the old garments, and the new garments, the new garments. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you, Hashem, for this wonderful festival. May it be your will, Hashem, our God, and God of our forefathers, that Tuba'av would be great and joyous Amen. in Yeshua's name. Amen. So just so you know, July 27th, which is a Friday, is, is actually Tuba'av. This year, we're going to have our Tuba Av uh, party, and it's going to be lots of fun. We're going to have it on uh, Yom Rishon, uh, simply because logistically, it's, it's easier that way when it falls on an Arab. But just so you know, it's Friday the 27th is Tuba Av, so you can make your Arab Shabbat a bit more special and romantic, okay? And I do want to encourage you, if you've never been to our Tuba Av um, uh, festivities, they are quite fun. This year is 
The theme is a night in paradise. And so it's going to be lots of fun. We have a wonderful uh, meal that's going to be prepared, and there's going to be lots of, uh, of uh, all kind of things going on. We have a photo booth and some other stuff. I think we're going to have some like, uh, silent auctions or maybe not so silent auctions. And it's, a, and it's a black tie thing, so it's a time, gentlemen, to wear your tuxedo, your black tie, whatever, ladies, dress up. It's going to be nice and wonderful. It'll be nice music. So I want to encourage you to uh, register for that, Baruch Hashem. And I think we're going to have the store open for those who might want to peek. So if you want to peek in the store, Katur will open it up for you tonight, and we want you to be able to do that. So Hashem bless you. Shavuot Tov. We'll see everybody on Shabbat with big smiles. Hallelujah. Toda Rabbah.